Welcome back to Season 2 of Delving Into Dance, where I interview the who's who of dance, discussing everything from dance, life and our place in the world. In this season, you'll hear from Daniel Jaber, Lucy Guerin, Noel Tovey, amongst others. But first, we start with Nook Van Dyke from Chunky Move, one of Australia's leading contemporary dance companies. You might remember Gideon Obazane from Season 1 of Delving Into Dance, who established Chunky Move in 1995. In 2011, when Gideon announced he'd be stepping down, the company undertook a worldwide recruitment drive before announcing Anouk, who took up the role in 2012, where she premiered her first work for Chunky Move and active now for Melbourne Festival. I caught up with Anouk before the rehearsal of Chunky Move's next show, Anti-Gravity. In this conversation, we discussed everything from clouds, collaborations, Chunky Move and counter-technique. I started by asking, when did dance become the dream? Um, and when I was 15, by the time I was 15, I was taking what was called in that time jazz dance classes. You know, now you would say it's hip-hop classes or urban dance classes. At that time it was called jazz dance. I think now they name it lyrical dance. But I loved it. And I had an amazing teacher who actually died a couple of weeks ago. Amazing teacher who uses who used poetry. He was writing poetry and then through the poetry he would express himself through dancing. That was just beautiful when I was 15. I was living in this small town and this whole world of poetry and imagination just opened up to me through movement. That was incredible. And so when I was 15, I was quite studying with him twice, three times a week, which was for my feeling a lot. (laughs) I said, yeah, innocent person. And uh, then my teacher had his birthday and one of his best friends came over from Paris who was a professional dancer. His name was Ian. I only met Ian once. And Ian came into the studio and he taught my teacher a dance. And my teacher said, come watch Ian, he's an amazing dancer. So you can see a real dancer. So I sat in the corner of this tiny studio, I'll never forget, and Ian filled the room. He filled the room with his energy, with his passion, with his power. And I, I, that was it. I was sort I was like, that's what I want to do. Wow. So we're home. I said, and I said to my mom, I want to be a dancer. And in my Dutch language, there's a distinction between a male or a female version of the word dancer. Um, but I said, I want to be a dancer. So it, it was for me sort of a concept, sort of an idea of being an identity for life. You know, that's what, and that's, it's still the same. That's it. And so you've never met Ian again? No. No, I just know his name was Ian. And he changed my life. And then my teacher said to me after, she said, yeah, you could be like Ian, you could even be better. Yeah. Wow. So I really owe my teacher, yeah. Sounds like a project, find Ian. Find Ian, I know, actually. That should be a project, yeah. yeah. I wonder if Ian's still dancing. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's all of his unknowns, yeah. He must be in his 70s, probably, yeah. Um, so we're meeting just before you start rehearsal um, for Anti-Gravity. What's this work about? Well, now I'm thinking of maybe it's my tribute to my teacher when I was 15, <laughs> uh, who just passed away. Um, well, yeah, so the work is called Anti-Gravity, which is a bit of a playful term because 
the actual scientific concept of anti-gravity doesn't really exist. Uh, there's one person in the world who claims to have been able to, to completely cancel out gravity, uh, but most scientists say that's not possible. Universal law, there's no way you can be without gravity. Um, so I see this work very much about the yearning for this lightness or this kind of being not being earthbound completely and people have very different ways how they relate to that topic and everybody will have their moment in their life where they are probably going on a quest of, of, of transcending themselves yeah. which can be metaphorically it can be a, a physical practice it can be more of a, um, a statement in your life where you want to change everything um, so from that place of graffiti and cancelling out graffiti, immediately you get into dance. Because dance is dealing with graffiti all the time. And there are dance forms that emphasize graffiti, and there's dance forms that want to cancel out graffiti. So yeah, so it's a, it, it's a concept that allows, I think, the dancer to connect with, but it's also a concept that we know, you know, in our dreams we can be we can have experiences of, of being without gravity um, uh, and then through that we come to clouds and clouds being uh, the, the clouds have been used as uh, you know, the iconographic role of clouds through the ages is constantly used in, in paintings and pictures and poems and mm -hmm. pop songs and clouds are Oh, strong metaphors for many, many things. Mm -hmm. well, it makes me think of um, your work, Depth of Field, because mm. the night that I saw that, um, a storm was coming in. It didn't actually come, but the clouds were, were such a... Threat. A, a threat, but yeah. also an amazing part of that show. Yeah. yeah. And watching them kind of roll in and yeah. move and the colours change it yeah. as the sun kind of set. Yeah. It was, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess... The sky has been an ongoing threat through all my works at Chunky because I come from a country that's been nicknamed low, land, low sky because there's no, there's no sense of high sky. It doesn't exist in Holland. It's just clouds and it's flat and horizontal. So the skies are horizontal. So if you look at the paintings and the painters, um, on one hand you cr it creates a spectacular cloud nights, but if you look at the more contemporary Mondrian-esque yeah, Mondrian, a very influential uh, minimalist painter and visual artist who just was drawing straight lines based on the Dutch landscape, which is flat. The yeah. sky is, it's all linear. And then when you come here, and I saw some of the paintings from Australian painters, it's beautiful. The skies have, are multiple colored and all these incredible pastels that, that are so rich in variety. And particularly in Melbourne, it's such a such a treat. Like mm. I bike home every night. It's such a treat. The sky is just very nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been skies in a lot of my works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of complexity of belonging as well now with the big sky. Yeah. And like an, act of, an act of now started with the skylight of the city. Yeah. Arriving right. in the city and then depth of field obviously is the outdoor sky and the city combined and then complexity of belonging, which had Bob Cousins' response to the project and had this epic Australian sky and now I work with the indoor cloud yeah so there's some connections 
Can we talk about the process from having the idea around clouds to kind of foreseeing it? From realising the yeah, idea? Yeah, yeah. So, well, the, the, the role of clouds came... Uh, why they became very important in the project is I, I when I was doing research, I think for depth of field, online I was looking through words and texts and writing and images and I came across the work of Ho Zunyan through that process because he'd done a work on uh, the cloud of the cloud of unknowing which was a work dealing with identity in clouds and I was working on identity in urban culture and city and nature and so I somehow came across by googling those words I came across this work so I met his work online Ho Zunyan and then I met Ho Zunyan in 2015 in Berlin when we were there on tour with Complex of Belonging. Um, and we started talking about, I'm interested in your work, what do you do? And he was like, well, what are you doing? And so we, we started to have conversations about practice, actually. That, the conversations started from there, and he was very quickly taken by my practice counter technique, which is taken in a big part of my career, and it's in the conversations in the studio where we would work all the time. Um, so we had a mutual interest in digging into deepening our understanding about information and then distilling the essence out of it. Um, so in those conversations, of course, the, his project, The Cloud of Unknowing, that had that had impressed me so much, you know, came to the fore. And, and I said to him, you know, it's amazing because the way you are talking about clouds and how it invites people to transcendence or meditation on one hand, but also is, is about pressure and oppression and uh, seduction and uh, uh, these kind of like more invasive qualities on the other hand. I said it's very much like it's almost like a physical body you're talking about. And I can really relate to that in movement. I can imagine to do a project on that same idea. And he was really interested in that because the research he'd done on that project was so extensive, he couldn't put it in this one film installation, The Cloud of the Knowing. So then we started to talk about what if we do a project together and we work again around the notion of clouds and we use the departure point from Ho Yen. Like we use as departure point the, um, all the extensive research that Ho Yen had done. That's where it started. It started here. That's where it started. Now, for a podcast, you can't see that, but there's an image <laughs> on the wall, a drawing, where we see a person staring at a cloud from afar, and the word vision, and then there's a person a little bit closer to the ground with a cloud closer on top of that person, which is called sleep, being like immersed in a cloud and being uh, in a downward vector of the cloud. And then the cloud in the next image is uh, uh, surrounding the person and the cloud is seducing the person, which comes to the, mytholo the mythological story of Io who got seduced by Zeus. And in some stories he transforms himself into a cow, but there's other stories where he transforms himself into a cloud. Wow. And then some stories he's a cloud, so his wife cannot, his wife Hera cannot see that he's cheating on her. And in other stories, he, he casts clouds of the entire sky. So from Mount Olympus, here I cannot see what Zeus is doing on Earth. So that's like a, 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 an anecdote we use in the show. 
And then there's the cloud as an indoor cloud. So when a cloud is depicted indoor, it deals with hallucination or meditation and transcendence. So it could be God or the spirit descending in the room or the angel Gabriel visiting. So so those are depictions particularly from the the early Renaissance where that happened. And then there's the idea of cloud as a circular idea because if you look at it more meteorological, it's, you know, it's the water that moves, goes to the land and it moves up and land heats up and it becomes a cloud and then the cloud moves further out and the air cools as it moves up and it becomes rain and it goes yeah. down and the rain becomes a river goes into the ocean and the cycle starts again. Uh, and then we also get into the concept of circular breath and emptiness where emptiness in Taoism and Sue's parents are Taoists, so he grew up, a, he's not a Taoist himself, but he grew up with Taoist parents. The concept of emptiness stands for full potential. Because if you look at a glass, what part has the most potential when the glass is half full? It's the empty part, because that's the, pl- the part where movement can occur and where the potential can grow. Mm. Whereas the part of the glass that's full is filled. And then the last bit is you see a person on a cloud, standing on a cloud, which is a lot of saints were depicted both in Western and Eastern culture flying on clouds as if they were vehicles for elevation and transcendence or the connection between the earth and heavens. So that was the departure point. Oh, wow. (laughs) And collaborations are so important in a lot of your works. Yeah, I really like to collaborate. If I don't collaborate with a site, you know, <laughs> then I collaborate with a person yeah. uh, or people. I collaborate in general with the dancers. They have a very strong, strong creative power in the work. There's a lot of discussions around what we make. How does yeah. a good collaboration work? Huh? How do you make a good collaboration work? Well, I mean, I guess in my work, it's not that everybody has equal responsibility. So the dancers can all go home and they have their night rest. <laughs> I go home and prepare rehearsal and run the company. Um, so in that sense, you know, it's not like a collective, but I think collaboration means... How I see my role in collaboration is that on one hand, I kind of initiate the direction where we're going, so I direct. But on the other hand, I need to facilitate a space where people can become really creative because through their creativity they can bring you know, their ideas to the table and then the others can respond to it and then we start to collaborate on making it work. Mm. So when we work in the studio we work with Jethro Woodward who's an incredible musician and he is very much in his element when he's in the studio responding to what he sees. So we just start a session of like an hour and he starts to play and people respond to it. But he responds to, to what people are doing. And then we talk a little bit and we say, oh, take them a little bit more there or there. And then he'll go through his massive file in his computer and we'll just find this magic. He places it back into the room, people respond to it. And, and that's how sections can grow. So it's not that we sit down and talk about it forever, but it's more on the... We talk about it, and then we go on the floor and we work, but we talk as we work. So I have a microphone, because often that can't be heard. I the music. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a shout mic. And then the dancers want me to to 
to engage with them, right? Um, so say, no, just give us a, give us some direction, and then we'll do something. <coughs> so then I'll give them information. Oh, cool, go in this section, or work with that improvisation task. Pull out those objects, or clear the space. Uh, let Naharka just be by herself now. Um, can be things like that. Yeah. But there's also sessions where I say nothing, and they just jam and go. So that's sort of like an early way how we start. So that way people can respond in their own way to the conceptual outline of the work. Yeah. And I really like the free format of that. In the past, I've worked way more structured and linear, but it somehow doesn't really work with my personality. I'm much more impulsive and responsive in the studio. Yeah. I need to do a lot of work beforehand so I kind of know what I'm talking about, but then once I've put it in the room, it's almost like now go and play. So everybody plays with it. The costume designer comes in with ideas. So it's chaos for a few weeks. Yeah. And then out of that, then I'll make the piece. Um, you mentioned before counter technique and how that has a big influence in the room and in the work that you do. What is counter technique? So counter technique grew out of my love for dancing, I guess. I wanted to dance for my lifetime. I didn't want to bash up my body and be done and destroyed by the time I was 30. Um, so as a young dancer, I was already really interested in kind of practices, dance practices that would uh, uh, acknowledge the fact that the body needs to be cared for. I did not really come out of a culture where that, where that was so important. So, for instance, all the somatic practices in dance and that are dance movement-related practices were not very in fashion in the Netherlands. People thought that was weak and that was just like for people who want to think a lot and talk a lot, but then when you see them move, they look really uninteresting. So the culture was not really uh, nurturing deeper research in the body. Um, so I started as a dancer with a lot of like high-impact physicality throughout my young dance career. Um, I was working in, in a contemporary repertoire company for the first five years of my career, so I danced works from Cunningham work to Butoh dance to dance theatre works and everything in between. So I had it was amazing the, 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 the amount of richness and wealth of all these choreographers with their practices and their backgrounds that came to the company. When four size people, really like, really, really good people came to the company. But it was completely confusing because none of those practices, we had, as dancers, we didn't have time to invest in what is it to be a Bhutto dancer. There was a Bhutto artist in the room for two months and then the person was gone. And then we would tour that work for a year. So after one month of touring, the Buddha work, we could feel, or I could feel my body, I don't have the essence anymore of the spirit and the intellect and the physical rigor that I need to do for this practice, because I would have a ballet class in the morning. Hmm. And it had nothing to do with like, like the Buddha intense work that I had to do in the afternoon. Um, and same thing with all the other, other dance practices that I had. So I got really frustrated and I left the company after five years and then I decided I want to become a specialist in something because this feels very superficial to just do all these different projects and none of the practices of these people that I engage with I could really 
study deeply. So then I spent a couple of years working with Amanda Miller, who was one of the Forsyth dancers of the early, early time. And she started up her own company, was very successful. And she brought in this whole knowledge through working with Forsyth around space and the three-dimensionality of space, the nine-point improvisation model. But her own aspect that she brought in was vulnerability. And vulnerability was, for me, an unknown concept. I had to look up the word in the dictionary because... In Holland, you work in English, and I didn't know the word vulnerability in English. So I looked it up, and that's for height, that's what the word is in Dutch. And I was like, is that a virtue in dance? How can that be a virtue in dance? And Amanda taught us care of touch, how you touch your partner, that you can communicate through touch, through your hands, what you want from the other person. It had never been important in the dance practice that I came from. So this whole world of awareness opened up through working with her. Then I started to study Alexander Technique, and Alexander Technique, I think, is one of the most, most amazing practices in the world around the use of the mind in relation to the body and how thought influences how your body is functioning on this deep level. It's an incredible practice. And that's, that was the rescue of my career, because I started to become aware of what my body was doing, and I started to work with my body instead of against my body. Through that practice, I started to completely rethink think training. So the knowledge of the space that I learned from Forsyth, and then, and then the knowledge around thought and consideration, how you think while you move from Alexander Technique, those two are brought together, and that eventually became counter to me. Wow. So you said you wanted to preserve your body so you could keep dancing. Can we expect to see you? Yeah, the dance, the dance keeps saying, like, I know you have to come back on stage with us. So at some point there will be a project that it makes sense. Yeah, with Lucid, uh, uh, Lauren and Steve were saying, I know you have to be on stage with us. And Ben Common was like, ah, go on stage. It's just too complicated to make the work being inside, so I couldn't. Um, so who knows? Yeah, ideally, yes, I would love to dance a little bit more. I love dancing. Do you miss that? Well, you know, I teach class. I teach camp technique class. And um, I dance around in rehearsal. So in that sense, I get my my joy of dancing happening. Yeah. Uh, I love performing, actually. really like performing because I danced really full-time as I was choreographing until I was 37. And then I had my daughter when I was 38. My company was really taking off in the Netherlands. We were doing lots of projects, multiple-year funding. So I didn't really have time for dancing. And then when I was 44, I started dancing again, which was really, really amazing. And I remember we were rehearsing, I got back in shape and everything, and then it was opening night. There was no preview for that work. It was in the Schaubühne Berlin, which is one of the most prestigious <laughs> stages in Europe. And I was in, you know, backstage, and I thought, I haven't been in front of an audience for seven years. I don't even know what it was like at that point. I stepped on the stage, I literally did a few steps on stage, I was like, ah, oh, I remember this. I really like to be on stage. So I really like to connect with other people on stage to perform. I'm not a solo artist at all. I don't have that interest at all to be alone on stage, but to connect with other performers and together bring a show to the audience is What's so amazing. What's that feeling in front of an audience, like, in terms of... How it is to be in front of an audience. Yeah, that, that transaction, I guess, between... 
audience. What I find really interesting is the moment you step on stage, all your preparation that you've done until that point is no longer valid. Because there's no return. You can't stop and say, oh, let's do this again, you know? It's like, I remember the first time scuba, di scuba diving, or I've only scuba dived once. It was very traumatic. But I was <laughs> scuba diving in the Great Barrier Reef with no preparation. And then I went down for 10 meters, and it was the most extreme existential experience I had because I realized I could not panic. If I would panic, I would get into trouble. Now, going on stage is for me the same thing. Like, you step on stage and you cannot panic because there's no return. So it's a very uh, interesting practice of letting, letting go of the expectation. That's what it is. You, on stage, you should let go of expectation and you just have to operate in that moment. Yeah. And it's an incredible experience. And as a dancer, it takes quite some years to achieve that freedom on stage. Yeah? A lot of dancers talk about, you know, that you practice to be in the moment. Yeah. And then Mike Schumacher, a very famous improviser, American improviser, he once said to me, well, the problem of staying in the moment is that you really cannot stay. Mm. Which is true, you know, which comes to a very essential thing of any meditation practice. So there is something like the unknown territory that you, you are facing when you're on stage. And at the same time, you repeat what you've practiced. That's like a complete dichotomy. That's the beauty. Yeah. That's the beauty of performing. The energy, the feeling of the energy of the audience, to relate yourself to that energy, to deal with bad energy of the audience, and to, to deal with that and to not let that affect you. Uh, and then the other thing what happens when you're a performer, what I found out through years, which I thought was very confusing, but then at some point I was very happy about it, was um, in the beginning when I performed, I expected that I knew how it would come across. So I was preparing myself, okay, I'm going to perform this way so that the audience will see that. And that never happened. Because the feedback I would get was always completely opposite of what I thought would come across. So if I thought I'd done a really great show, people would come to me and say, yeah, you looked a bit tired. And if I would have like a really bad show or I felt a bit unconcentrated or I felt not good in my body, sometimes people would come to me and say, like, this was the best show you've ever done. It was really moving what you were doing. So I felt so confused from it. Like, how can then I control and predict what I'm doing on stage if, if, if it's always coming across very differently? So I was having a few years as a, you know, when I was about 25, 26, a few years that I was so confused and depressed by it. <laughs> and since I didn't have a practice to rely on, and now account technique really comes into the fore, there was no, nothing I could rely on. I felt so vulnerable and... Um, so confused. So for a few years I was really, really confused. And then at some point, after a big catharsis and drama, I decided that I that it would be okay that I didn't understand. That that would be okay. It's okay to not understand. And I think the Alexander Technique practice in that time also really helped me to understand that. And that was liberation because I stepped on stage and I had no expectation of the outcome. Yeah. And I would step into the unknown. And that opened up the world. It was, I stepped into the half-empty glass, right? I stepped in the world of potential. 
And then I, I, from that point, I've always enjoyed performing. Even bad shows, because it was no longer about good or bad or successful or unsuccessful. It was about the actual exchange that happened there between the people on stage, between us and the, the technical team, the stage manager. That everybody is involved of creating the work. Mm. I like when I see a performance, I can feel if the technicians are in the show. I can just feel it with cueing. If 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 people do it together. Yeah. Or if it's not done together. So I really learned from on stage to be one with everybody on the team, which also frees you from your fear, like, oh, I'm alone, I have to perform and be really good. It just completely erased that. So I have no idea how I performed after that point, and actually I didn't care. So so that, I think, is the beauty of performing. And so... With the dancers with Chunky, we also we talk about these things a lot. And the dancers that have worked with me, they've developed a practice that absolutely deals with that moment in time. And I think that allows them to create an incredible intimacy on stage. Because mm. it's not about ego ever. Can I ask about your move to Australia to take over Chunky Move? Because at the time I read, you hadn't been to Melbourne. You'd been to Australia, but you'd never been to Melbourne. You obviously knew the company from its um, reputation and the work that it's toured. Um, that must have been incredibly um, an amazing moment. Yeah. So much unknown. Yeah, it was a bit, I think, a bit like when <clears throat> I had very long hair and then from one day to the next I started to cut really short. It's a bit like that. I think it's something... That from the outside looks like a very bold move, but from the inside it was totally logical that it needed to happen. Um, I knew Chucky Move, I'd seen the company perform because the company was performing on similar stages and festivals as my Dutch company was. So we would run into each other in the States, in China, in Russia, or we would just miss each other. I knew Gideon from the Netherlands when, because he was dancing a bit in the Netherlands and he was doing some of his first commission choreography in the Netherlands as yeah. a young choreographer for the Netherlands Dance Theatre too. Um, and he was very much working in that time in the club scene and uh, Netherlands Dance Theatre too wanted to bring more like hip choreographers into the company to, to bring in a younger audience. And so Gideon was one of the choreographers from the change inside that company. Um, and then in my visits to Australia, I taught, I taught some classes for Chucky when they were still based in Sydney. Yeah, a long time ago. So there was some kind of connection with the company. And Gideon and I would, yeah, run into each other in, uh, somewhere in the world on festivals. So he was a bit aware of my work. And I was obviously aware of some of the work of the company that uh, I was perform, being performed. Um, yeah, so when Gideon decided to leave, the... Uh, I actually came across, he told me himself, because I was looking for an email address from an Australian composer, and Gideon uh, uh, sent me his email address, and then he said, oh, by the way, I'm leaving Chunky, I'm doing a global recruitment. And then I found, that's how I found out, and then I started to look into it, and I looked into the company and started to think about... Uh, there were a lot of similarities to the philosophy of my Dutch company, to Chunky. It was very similar in terms of a certain way of not working with an ensemble, but working with returning dancers, but then creating a movement of dancers around the company. 
Only Chunking was operating on a bigger scale. And also I wanted to direct, you know, I wanted to be an artistic director for a bigger company. And in the dance world in general, it's very rare that there's global recruitment for any any role. Mm. It's always via via, it's always in crowd. So you never, like in Holland, you would never be able to take over one of the companies because they don't do open recruitment. At some point, it's just known there's a new artistic director of the company, which is very frustrating for any artist who wants to kind of develop. Um, so I think a lot of people internationally really jumped on the occasion for Chunky. And then the other big draw for me was the country. Australia. That was because it was everything the Netherlands was not. <laughs> it was huge and empty. And Holland is tiny and overcrowded. It has an incredible climate. And, you know, Holland. It's Holland. <laughs> Northern Europe. You know, it's great. Um, it is an immigration culture that had to kind of figure out how to be a multicultural multi society from. Uh, for centuries now. Holland is just facing all that stuff since the 60s, so it is in a very different cycle of understanding what immigration, implications of immigration mm. are. Um, the, the whole idea of identity is a very, very big topic in Australia, and in my work I was very much drawn to that topic and to how it affects us on a, almost like a cellular level. Mm. So I thought this is an incredible research place to be, to be in a country where that is, where, where people are so knowledgeable about it, there's so much writing about it, so much, um, so much art has been made around that topic. So I was really drawn to that. Has the philosophy of Chunky Move kind of changed under your leadership? Does it shift? Yeah, I think I would say so. You know, I'm like I would say identity and and the role of the performer in the work has shifted a lot. It's very important. Also the next move artists that I've brought in maybe you've noticed all of them are performing in their own works. So I'm really interested in, 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 in seeing how art is being created through a very strong uh, explorative engagement of, of the dancer. But not so much to just make movement material, but to think about their presence and their identities on stage. Um, so, you know, I'm not so aware of, obviously, I can't completely compare notes because it wasn't here when Gibbon no. was here. But I think sort of the role of the performer and the dance as dance practice, a physical practice that can be researched and further developed, and the dancers together also help each other how to further develop the craft of dance, is what I understand is very much something that I've brought in. Um, I guess the world, the, the work has a little bit more of a emotional edge to it, um, which I think is the effect of looking very much, from, not so much for the concept to present a concept, but to more to see what how people carry carry an energy on stage, which brings their inner drive to the fore. Mm. Um, but then a lot of my dancers and younger dancers who've studied counter technique with us now are all dancing in other companies. So there's a whole bunch in Coast 3, a whole bunch in Dance North. Uh, in New Zealand, a lot of people who've studied with us, who've seconded with us, who've danced with us. Um, so there's a little bit of a 
like I know I see certain aesthetic <laughs> pop up with other companies now, which makes sense because dancers bring material yeah. into the room. I'm interested in like coming from being a dancer to a choreographer to an artistic director. Like each one requires something quite different. Mm. Yeah, it does. You know, like what do you bring? Or like, what? How do you think about the different roles? I guess. Well, I guess you're young in every role when you start them. And then you bring, the more roles you take on, the more knowledge you bring in from the other roles, I think. Um, not all dancers, though, make great choreographers. No. And likewise, not all choreographers make good artistic directors. Oh, not all great choreographers were great dancers. I know some amazing choreographers who were very, yeah, not very visible dancers, you know. I can only speak for myself. Um, I guess when I take on a new role, in a way I'm happy I'm so naive because therefore I don't feel burdened down by, oh gosh, can I do this or not? Um, so I'm, I operate very much through response. So I might not plan at first, but when I realize, okay, this needs to happen, then I, I'm really good at organizing. <laughs> but I don't organize beforehand. I organize when I see the things immersed and come to the table, and then I start to organize and direct. So I guess that's how I work as a dancer. Like, I take on a... I, I remember as a young dancer, I would take on a, a different way of working. It would completely confuse me because I would be prepared, and then I would upskill myself so I could be prepared for the work. Uh, and then as a choreographer, same thing. I just start to choreograph with my colleagues, you know, and that's what you do. You you have ideas. Uh, as a young choreographer, you always think all the other choreographers are losers, you know. <laughs> Anyone of the next generation is just completely loser, and that's what you think. Uh, so you have, you know, a very idealist way of operating. Uh, and then you come across all these things that you don't know, and then you just have to deal with that. <laughs> and then you learn through that. And I, I guess the same thing with being an artistic director. If you go up to the next level, I remember, you know, when I took on more of an artistic director, directorship in the Netherlands, uh, I ran into all these things of writing funding and having to write around marketing and audience development and what's your role in the ecology and in the culture. And you don't know when you start with it because it's not, this, it's not a school that you can go to for artistic director for a dance company. Those schools don't exist. So you learn from talking to peers. Board members are often very important, very important. I've experienced both in Holland and here. I have amazing board members here. So people help to upscale you in areas where you need to upskill. Now philanthropy is very important. So every small to medium dance company has to learn the ropes of how to fundraise. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess open mind and not being afraid that your failure is the end of it is very important, I think, as a skill. Yeah. And then learn from feedback and then through the feedback grow, I guess. So it's painful. Is there anything you wish you knew at those steps along the way that you Const now know? Constantly, of yeah. course, constantly. Yeah, if I would do the move to Australia again, I would do it completely different. Yeah, it, it, but it's inevitable with everything you do. The good thing is you learn from all the previous things that you've done. And what I really like is that since I know how it is to be a dancer, deeply, as a choreographer, I know better what my dancers are doing. And a lot of choreographers don't. 
in Darwin, particularly since choreography became now more something you can study in the last decade, let's say, mm. the last 15 years, 20 years, became something you can study. There's a lot of choreographers who are never dancers. So they don't necessarily know what it is to work for eight hours a day or what it is to recover from an intense performance. Um, and I'm happy I know. I do forget how it is, so I lose my empathy in the process. And I always warn my dancers, at some point, I don't care if you guys are tired. I apologize beforehand. I don't care. But at some point, I have to finish the work. And then that's why, no, 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 you know, you need to finish your work. And we'll, we'll take care of each other. So um, I guess that's what I like about being able to shift. It's sometimes difficult to shift in your mind because you have to sit in a very... If I have a meeting as an artistic director about planning for the company, I have to be in a different part of my brain than when I'm in rehearsal, and I want to be open and responsive to creativity. And those are different parts of the brain, and that's very exhausting. And it's mm. not always successful to shift over. It's not always possible. You said that you'd do things differently if you came to Australia again. What would you do differently? Um, I, well, when I came to Australia, we planned two works back-to-back right away, one for Melbourne Festival and one for Dance Massive, which didn't allow me for the very first year to get to know anybody because we were so busy producing the work. Yeah. So probably it would have been good to not do that, just one, <laughs> not two in the first year. That would have been very helpful because, because we were making the work and at the same time I was trying to get to know people. I was trying to see shows of other companies and to understand the dance ecology in Australia and Melbourne has a big ecology. Uh, that took much longer to get to know that than I'd wished for. Yeah. Yeah. So I wish that, that I wish we'd done slightly different. Yeah. yeah, you suddenly jumped into the yeah. deep end and yeah, very busy. Yeah, right away, very, very busy and I had um, a bit of, you know, a bit of rehearsal of director assistance from uh, one of my former long-term dancers. But if that had been just throughout the year, we could have made the transition much better. You know, yeah. there's things like that that you, uh, looking back at it, would have we would have done differently. Um, the whole political system here looks very similar to the Dutch, but it does operate very different, and that comes from a, on a more on a deeper level of how how the social flow is between. Uh, the people in Australia is very different than in Holland. So there's the codes of how to communicate with each other and when people experience a trust being built is very different. And that's something that's not easy to find in writing. <laughs> it's something that you run across by talking to uh, other people who immigrated here or hearing from people who were from Australians who were overseas. Mm-hmm. and who talk about their experience of the difference. So through that reflection, you understand better. Um, I had no idea what first-generation, second-generation Australians were. I, I remember in the first year I went to the Writers' Festival and uh, there, was, there were just incredible conversations between all these amazing Australian writers who were all second-generation. And I, in that time... And Catherine Jones, who was our executive producer in the time, she suggested I should go there to just... Because I said to Catherine, I want to learn about Australian identity in the society and how can I quickly upskill my understanding of it? Yeah. 
And that was very informative going to the writer festival. That was, yeah, enlightening. Yeah. Does Australia feel like home now? Oh, yeah, it's totally home. Yeah. yeah. After five years, it's really that's the place. When I go to Holland, I visit. I, I go there to visit family and old friends. But I have more friends here now than I had in Holland. So there's a there's a shift that moves uh, gradually. But after five years, that's a long time. Mm. After two years, you haven't made a shift. But after five years, there's a shift. So where I feel home in the world as a human being, as an artist, there's no place. As an artist, there's no place. You feel at home with people you meet. You know, identity as an artist it operates on a different level. I think it's more the conversation you're a part of, the work you see, the, the places that inspire you, the audience members you meet. That, that, I think, that creates home. So in that sense, when we tour, I feel very much at home when we tour, if we have a good connection with the audience there or the local community where we teach workshops or other artists we meet. But my family is here, so that's also home. Yeah. So what's next for Chunky? What's next for Chunky's next move this year, which is really exciting because we have James Batchelor full evening work. It's the tenth year of Next Move, which I find very important. Because it started as a small thing to give a platform to some of the long term dancers from Chucky. You know, people like Anthony Hamilton, Seth Lake, you know, they'd been dancing with the company for years before they started to create their first work. So it started from that kind of platform for the next generation of dancers coming out of Chucky. Mm. to make that work and then when I arrived I opened it up to independent artists so that was a big shift in the program it was no longer only dancers from, who came through through uh, Chucky it was um, it was uh, yeah giving a platform to people like Atlanta Eek who had made already strong full evening work and, but had never worked on that scale mm. had not worked in front of an audience like that it only worked in front of a peer audience. So, um, so the next move model shifted to a model where it offers a platform for people to do, to make a step, to make it their next move. Um, and the interesting thing is, it feels like full circle that we have now James Bachelor making a work. He's now working with the company quite a bit as a dancer. So there's, on one hand, the, pro- the next move has really evolved, and on the other hand, uh, I felt like after 10 years it really needed to also um, go back to its roots of uh, supporting a really young person. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And you've got a bit of touring? Oh gosh, no, no, we have a lot of touring actually. <laughs> That's you put that out of your mind for good reason. I put it reason. out of my mind for now. So yeah, so, that's, oh, yeah, so next move is at the end of the year. Uh, what's next for Chunky is quite some international touring of, and regional touring. So we do for the first time, Chunky is doing a regional tour in Victoria, four different cities, or yeah, towns, cities. We take a small tour of a work. Um, then we take some works to Europe. We take um, um, an act of now, which was created in 2012 to Theater der Welt in Hamburg. Uh, 
it's one of the biggest German festivals that always has one big international focus. And this year the focus is in Australia and New Zealand, I think. And we are the big dance show with Active mm-hmm. Now. So we bring that work alive again, which is very exciting that the work is the dancers are so excited to bring the work back on the stage. So we do that, which is that big season in Hamburg. And then we bring Dr. Field to Denmark for Aarhus European Capital of Culture. Yeah, and then we make a new installment of Dr. Field with local participants and um, uh, on a new site. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to be very exciting. Yeah. So that's a big, big project. So we're there in residence for a couple of weeks to make the work. Yeah. It's a whole project by itself. And then we take a plexic belonging to the Aarhus Festival. Uh, uh, also part of the European capital. Yeah. So that's a lot of work for the company. And hopefully have a holiday at the end. Hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the way back actually I fly over the US because I do some contact teaching in the US because contact is extremely popular in the US. Um, and um, some of our dancers have gone over already to LA to teach. And then I have, because I have. Um, almost 30 teachers around the world who teach counter techniques, so I have a few locals now. But there's teachers in the US and in Europe. So there's sort of a growing community around counter technique. And I haven't I haven't taught counter technique in the US for 10 years. So I thought on my way back, I'll do a, uh, a week in New York and a week in LA. And, back. Yeah. and check and move repertoire, because people are like, we want this to check and move repertoire. So. Fabulous. Thank you so much. At delvingintodance.com, you'll find a list of episode notes and previous episodes from the likes of Stephanie Lake and Gideon Obazanik, who both have a long history with Chunky Move. You can subscribe on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can follow on Twitter at Delving Dance. And I'd really appreciate it if you could help spread the word. Share this episode with anybody that you think might be interested. Thanks again, and until next time... Take care.